All right. Is everybody feeling some energy now? You should be. There was an impartation of energy that went out. All right. Let's just start with a, a quick prayer here. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have to come together. I thank you for the opportunity to impart to one another, to share in oneness this morning, and to just be in your presence, to lift you high and to, to worship you. And let this time be a time of worship to you. And let it be a time of encounter with you, Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, what were we talking about last week? Jesus, thank you, thank you. The child comes out. Talking about Cornerstone, right? We are into week two of the foundation series this week. And last week, we talked about Jesus as the cornerstone. And if you remember, we have to take a hard look at the old wineskins that we are operating in. Rather, uh, we need to identify them and then move away from them, right? We want to make sure that we know what those old wineskins are, and if we are operating in them, we say, okay, this is actually an old wineskin. This is not where God has me anymore, and I'm going to be moving away from those things. So that was a, a quick description of the old wineskins, you know, the, the way we used to do something, those old assignments. And I've actually taken to starting calling assignments missions uh, because it just puts a little bit more emphasis on what it is that for me into what God is calling me into to call it a mission rather than an assignment. I've been put on mission. So the the uh, assignments or or missions, those things that we, you were being obedient into, uh, unto God in that he had called you into before that he said are now over and he has something else for you. Uh, those are, are what we're calling old wineskins. And that, that's what we're talking about. You know, this is, this is the way you used to operate. This is the way God used to have you moving. But now he has something else. He has something better. He has something fresh because things change. And we need to shift. And we need to, to do that uh, quickly. And so uh, part of this series is to help us make that shift and that transition. We lay a foundation and we are able to build off of that and continue moving forward. And so this is, the entire rest of 2023 is about laying a very solid foundation. And so if you remember, we talked about God is after depth. And so are we here. We are after depth. We're not about surface level moving out really wide. That's going to happen naturally. But initially, we need to go deep. We need to make sure there is depth into what it is that we are, are talking about, what it is that we're moving in, what it is we're thinking about, what it is that we're going after. We're going after depth. Not just going to explore these the, the foundational facets of faith for the rest of the year. We're, we're having an expectation of transformation in people's lives. That is the real expectation, is, is transformation. We also said, the, uh, if you watched any of the broadcasts, we we're, we're expecting either transformation or transition. And so we expect to see movement. And, and I know that may make some people uncomfortable. You know, what does it mean by an expectation of movement? It just means that you're moving out of the old wineskins and there is fruit that is evidence of that movement. 
And again, I said last week, I don't know what that fruit is going to be for you because we're each given a different mission. Right? We, we have callings, and in those we have different missions that need to be fulfilled. And so there's going to be different fruit from each of those things. So I don't know what that looks like for you, but as you start to uncover that and you start to uh, uh, get expression of what that looks like from Holy Spirit, be sure to share that with somebody that you're in oneness with because we get to then hold each other accountable to these things. We get to start seeing that come out in one another. And we know the mission that each of us are on. So last week we talked about cornerstone, and in that we talked about the path of compromise. The path of compromise of, of tolerance moving into an affirmation of whatever that sin is that we are tolerating, and then into acceptance, and then into adoption. Right? You tolerate a thing, you're pushed a little bit further from toleration to uh, say, okay, I can affirm that in somebody else's life. Not necessarily mine, but somebody else, it's okay for them. And then they're pushed a little bit further. There's a smile. You get pushed a little bit further into acceptance. Now you're saying, not only is it okay for you, now it's okay for me. I haven't done the sin. I'm not operating in that right now, but it's okay. And then moving on into adoption. And that's where you start to actually move into that sin. So that's a path of compromise. So we talked about that uh, quite a bit. And I asked some questions. When are we going to say enough is enough? This is a question that has been circulating around since the conference last year, since the Straight Shot Conference. When are we going to say enough is enough when it comes to compromise? When it comes to those little things that are being tolerated that eventually push you into something bigger? When will you decide that if it isn't strengthening holiness in you, I'm not going there? That's the same thing as, as looking at that that first question, when is enough enough? When are we going to say, this isn't strengthening holiness in me, so I'm not going to take part in it. I'm not going to tolerate it either. When will you run from rebellion and into obedience? That was a question that came up last week, but it's also applicable to this week and what we're going to get into in a little bit. When will you stop hiding from the discipline of God? We get so afraid of the word discipline in our culture because it has such a negative connotation. We always associate that with some kind of physical pain. Discipline equals pain. Whether that's whatever that whatever form that comes in, that's what is associated with that. And we need to understand that that discipline coming from God isn't meant to be painful. It's meant, it's meant to be correcting, to strengthen character, to build us up, to be able to walk in what it is that he's called you into. Whatever the mission is that he's given you, he wants to set you up for success in that. And so there's discipline that comes in there. It corrects things in our character that need to be corrected. He also calls us into disciplines, meaning he wants us to, to do certain things. He wants us to commune with him. He wants us to uh, study the scripture not just read it, actually get in and start studying. These are disciplines that he calls us into. He'll call us into disciplines of prayer. Like, I want to have you intercede every single day for this thing, whatever that thing is. 
for the people that you share oneness with, for that, that local church body. I want you to intercede on behalf of your city. I want you to intercede on behalf of these counties in your state. These are disciplines that it'll call you into. So, so discipline is a, a, a multifaceted word that we need to, to be paying attention to. So when are we going to stop hiding from that? I told you last week I wanted you to walk out of here with, with a clear understanding that leads to belief in uh, the foundational, as the belief in Jesus as the, the foundational piece that's set in place uh, that brings everything together, that ties everything together, that cornerstone. And I wanted you to walk out of here with, with a real desire to, to seek after Jesus and, and place him as the cornerstone in your life. A life that in, in, in discipleship that's moving to be transformed, to be more like him, running on that narrow road that leads to life. And we talk about that a lot, that narrow road. We really want people to be on that narrow road because when you're on that narrow road, it doesn't leave room for you to take your focus off Jesus because there's no space for you to turn your head. So the tighter he, he boxes you into something, the more he wants to, to discipline you. That means he's calling you into something and it should be looked at something special. Right? There is a narrow path that, that keeps you focused. That's something I want you to keep in mind also as we go through today. And, and we talked, the primary scripture was Matthew 21, 33 to 46, the, the parable of the vine growers and the vineyard owner. And we talked about three key things. Now, the first was Jesus is where it all begins. Jesus Christ is the starting point for everything. The one whose measurements are true and whose placement is exact. His placement is always exact in your life and you can measure everything off of him. Second, we discussed that that rejection isn't the final word. So rejection by his very own family, it, it turns out, it's not the final word, right? He, he was rejected by his very own family. And we looked at the story of Daniel in, in there and where Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar both the dream and the dream interpretation. And the, the final portion of that dream was uh, where the huge stone is cut out of the mountain. Stone is cut out without hands. And it came down and crushed all the kingdoms that were were known to come based off this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And then that stone grew to fill the entire earth. And the last thing we talked about, and, and probably the, the piece that you should grab onto the most, is that the kingdom of God is yours. Will you take hold of it and stop living in the old wineskins? This is the kingdom that will itself endure forever. That stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands is a kingdom that will endure forever. That's how it's described. And that kingdom has been given to you. That, that kingdom is yours. And Jesus even told the Pharisees, he said, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits.
and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So while we aren't replacing Israel, right, as believers in, in Jesus as the chief cornerstone, we are identified as those worthy of being tenants of God's kingdom. We are the people who recognize and believe the identity of the Son, Jesus Christ. So that was, that was last week. That was cornerstone. And so I wanted to make sure that you still have that fresh in your mind. We are going to, to touch on these each week. Because if we're talking about foundations here, these are things that you should have a firm grasp of. And if you don't have a firm grasp when you walk out of here today of either cornerstone or camp life that we're going to get into, then there's more study that needs to be done throughout the week. And I guarantee you there's more study that needs to be done each and every day. These are foundations. These are the, the pieces that we are laying into the foundation that you need to grasp very firmly and should be able to talk about with anybody. So that brings us to this week, Camp Life. What on earth is this all about? What What is Camp Life about? And I'll be honest, I thought I knew which direction this was going to go until I started getting into it and uh, kind of took a different turn. But the aim for today for me is that you are reliant on God for everything in your life, living out the faith you claim. In your reliance, uh, you would be marked by communing and resting with God and by the victories that he gives you. Be reliant on God for everything in your life. Be marked by communing and resting with God and the victories that he gives you. All right, so camp life. Let's, let's start with just a description of what the camp looked like for Israel as they were going through the desert. So this is after they've been brought out of Egypt, they've crossed through the Red Sea, they were at the base of Mount Sinai. Now they're, they're getting ready to depart from there. All right, and so we're going to be talking out of the book of Numbers today. And I know that this book gets a, a bad rep as being boring, uh, but it's anything but boring. And I'm going to show you some of that today. Uh, we won't get into the uh, talking donkey story. You can read that on your own. So if you weren't aware, the Bible does record a talking donkey, and it is in the book of Numbers. All right, the English title Numbers, this comes from the two censuses that were uh, really central features of the book. Uh, however, the Hebrew title is actually In the Wilderness. And so I think that's a better, better way to look at this book, is this is about the, the Israelites in the wilderness and, and what took place there. And so that, I think that's a better description. So what did the Israelite camp look like? It was basically arranged in a big square, uh, arrayed in line with, with the four points of the compass. And so on the eastern side of the camp was uh, the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And those were on the east side, and they were all under the standard of Judah, which means Judah had charge over, over the eastern side of the camp. In the south were the camps of Gad, Simeon, and Reuben, and they were under 
the standard of Reuben, of the tribe of Reuben. Along the western side was the tribes of Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim, and they were all under the standard of Ephraim, which means Ephraim had charge of the western side. In the north was the camps of, or excuse me, the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, and Dan was uh, the one, tribe of Dan had charge over the north. And then in the center was the tabernacle. And Moses and Aaron and some of the other priests, they were camped on also on the eastern side. The eastern side was important because the eastern side was is where the sun comes up. And that's the direction the tabernacle faced, was the direction of the rising sun. And so that kind of gives you a, a, a picture of what it looked like. Right, so if everything is arrayed around the tabernacle, we know that that's the focus. So it's something to keep in mind. That was why it was set up like that: is is this to make sure that the central focus was in the center of that camp, which was the tabernacle. And we're going to get into the tabernacle specifically next week. So more importantly than the focus being in that central portion of the camp being the tabernacle, it was, it was God, his presence that rested on the tabernacle. Everything was focused on, on guarding that space. God wanted to be at the center of his family, which was the nation of Israel, and he wanted to provide for them. He wanted them to rely on him and connect with him. But he wanted it done in holiness. He wanted it done his way. And this is, this is part of the reason why I want you to walk away from here with reliance for everything in your life on God. To look for, to him for provision, for, for protection, for guidance, for everything. Is, because that's what he wanted. The, the central focus being that place of, of connection with God in the camp. He wanted to provide for them. He wanted to be at the center of his family. He wanted them relying on him. But he did want it done in holiness. He had a certain way that he wanted things done. So I also want to talk about, quickly, before we get to the book of Numbers, what were the priorities of work and the priorities of effort for the people in the camp? One of the things we have to understand is, uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of military terminology, but there was an area of operations, that's, that's the camp proper, and, and, and any area just outside of that where the Israelites kind of, you could say, owned ground. Wherever they were camped at, they were owning that ground, because they were fiercely, I can't say that word this morning, fiercely going to protect the tabernacle. And so they, they, that was their area of operation. So outside of that is what you have call an area of influence. So this is the things that you do in that ground you own. It's going to have an effect just outside of that for the, the towns, the, the, the people that lived on the, the periphery there. Uh, so that there was an influence that happened in these outer areas. And so we have to understand that. So your, your priorities of work are the tasks that uh, need to be accomplished, and they're done in a specific order, right? So uh, work 
when, when you stop for any length of time, there are things that have to happen. You know, security has to be established. The boundaries of the tabernacle have to be set. The different tribes get, get their areas. And these areas were, were, like we talked about, prescribed by God and, and all had to be laid out whenever they stopped anywhere. And so they had their priorities of work. And that was within their area of operations. They didn't always know how long they would be camped for. It's described as different ways. They could be there for five days, five hours, five months. They didn't know. Uh, so they were, they were very well practiced in setting up, tearing down, moving, and setting up again. Every tribe of Israel had, to, had their part to play. When they moved, there was a specific march order that they would go in. The, the tribe of Levi, they, they weren't listed in that area around the camp because they were the priests. They did all of the work in and around the tabernacle. And you can go uh, at the beginning of the book of Numbers. It lays out all of their duties in great detail. We're not going to get into that today. But they had the duty of, of tearing down and setting up the tabernacle and all of its implements inside of there, all of its furnishings. And there would have also been duties to, to guard around the perimeter of the camp, cleaning, meal prep, disciplinary issues, all the things you can think about. And so these are all priorities of work. And so you can imagine those things. And then there are the, the priorities of efforts. And, and we talked about area of influence, and so it kind of gives you some idea of what we, what we mean when we say priorities of effort. Uh, that's the things that you do that have an effect outside of the camp in the areas around you. So Israel... Uh, was moving as a nation amongst other nations. So what they chose to do would have an effect on the other nations around them as they, as they pass through. So how they chose to do those things, those would be called the priorities of effort. So they're simple, uh, the things you have to do uh, that have an effect outside of your camp on your, uh, your area of influence there. So I bring this up because uh, we're going to be talking about rebellion in, in a minute, specifically seven rebellions uh, committed by the people of Israel that are outlined in the book of Numbers. When you remain focused, though, on your priorities of work and, and your priorities of effort that God has set out, and you remember what the central focus is, your imagination to, to dream up ways to rebel uh, because of perceived lack of provision or jealousy, uh, whatever, uh, doesn't have the opportunity to gain a foothold if you're staying focused. So what is your focus on? In your calling uh, or, or your current mission, what has God told you your priorities of work are? What has he said your priorities of effort are? What are those? You will have priorities to focus on in the, the mission that God hands out. What are they? And are you focused on them? What's the area of influence that you're focusing your efforts on? You have your tribe, your community, those that you share oneness with that's in your area of operation. Beyond them, who is it that God is showing you to put effort toward? Questions for you to be thinking about. So let's get into the rebellion. So once the nation of Israel leaves Mount Sinai, this is where things start to kind of go a little wrong, a little crazy. 
And each of these stories that we're going to go through begins with a moment of Israelite insurrection where the, the people complain or rebel or, or grumble, uh, just generally not staying focused. And what you're going to see is that these stories are interconnected. They are uh, somewhat what you could call concentric pairs of rebellions. The first rebellion is uh, rebellion and fire in the camp. The second is uh, manna and Moses' complaint against God. The third is rebellion against Moses. And the fourth is uh, rebellion against the Exodus. And then we come back to matching the third of the rebellion against Moses. There's a a rebellion against Aaron. And then coming back where... uh, people are complaining about manna. Now they're starting to complain about lack of water. So there was a complaint again about lack of food, now lack of water. And then uh, coming back to the rebellion and fire in the camp, the last one we'll look at is rebellion and fiery snakes in the camp. And we'll get into fiery snakes if we talk about that. So I I am going to put these together as we go through these. And so uh, let's look at the first pair. So if you would turn to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. And we are going to start in verse 1. This first story is very short. First three Verses of chapter 11, book of Numbers. Everybody there? Getting close? All right. Okay. Numbers 11, starting in verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Tabirah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. What we can take from this is that This complaining, it wasn't inward. This isn't anything that they were saying inside of themselves. It was out loud. They all started complaining together. Their, their, their complaints, you could, you could say, reach the heavens, reach God's ears. And so God's response to these rebels, uh, they were consumed with fire. Uh, some commentators that I read suggest this may have been lightning. Uh, my personal view is that, uh, by the nature of the stories that we read in the Old Testament, this, this was probably literal fire consuming people. And unfortunately, I, I've seen firsthand what lightning can do to the human body, and I would not describe that as consuming. In this instance, I, w- I would not assume that the fire described is something that's metaphorical, uh, but actual consuming fire. So, so impressive was, was God's punishment that the people named that part of the camp uh, Tabira, which means burning. 
All right, so that was that was the first one. So the, the counterpart to that is in Numbers 21. So we jump over to Numbers 21. We're going to read verses 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now there is a lot in there that we could pull out another time. But the focus today is, is this rebellion that they were, they were committing. So the literal translation of, of the Hebrew in there is fire or fiery. And so a lot of translations, when it talks about fiery serpents, uh, a lot of English translations will uh, translate that, that as poisonous or venomous. So that's what they mean by fiery. So um, the rebellion and uh, result of fire. So in both instances here, the people complained greatly. There was a lot of complaining going on and not just some inward grumbling. These are outward, like the people are just about ready to revolt. And they eventually realized what they'd done. And in both crises, uh, it's resolved by Moses engaging in intercessory prayer. That's what resolved these. The next two stories, let's get into those. Jump back over to Numbers 11. This picks up where the last, last story left off. Numbers 11, verse 4. This is a bit of a longer one. It says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance like that of delium. The people went out, went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. This is, it says everyone at the door of his tent. This is an entire nation of people complaining and whining about what about the provision of God, what he has provided for them. 
goes on and says, the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth, that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, as a nurse carries a nursing child, to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. You can read this story and, and hear Moses's response to God about what the people are saying about this rebellion, you can read it in a couple different ways. The first time I read it, I could just hear Moses whining. And the second time I read it, I could hear a travail in his voice, a real lament to say, this is a lot. I have the entire nation coming to me. I'm the only one there that is leading all of these people and I can't do it on my own. He felt like he would rather die than continue in that way. And so it kind of changed and reframed the way I saw Moses coming to God with this petition to say, I need, I need this burden lifted in some way. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. We're going to get back to the manna complaint here in just a minute, but God has something else he wants to deal with first. He says, and let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the Lord among who I am number 600,000 on foot. And you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Think about this. God just told Moses that he's going to provide enough meat for this entire nation. And Moses is just talking about the census. So this 600,000 was the, the men that were counted. He's saying, God's saying it's going to be for everybody. Where is all this meat going to come from? That's, that's what Moses is thinking in his natural brain now. Like, I, I've forgotten this 
you know, a little incident where the Red Sea split open and we were able to walk through on dry ground. Like, you know, just that little thing, just that one little thing. He forgets that for a moment and says, is flocks and herds and all of the animals we have aren't enough to be able to feed all these people like you're describing for an entire month. Moses thinks that all of the fish of the sea have to be pulled out to accomplish this. But the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. God says, watch this. Going back to the burden of leadership here, it says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. They prophesied, they praised God. They started to, to act like the priest did. He's talking about prophesying. He's not talking about they started, you know, spouting off all of the things that are going to be happening in the future. This was about the, the priestly acts that were going on. It goes on and says, Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Okay, you got to catch this for a second. These two guys were part of the 70, but they didn't come to the tent. But the Spirit was still placed on them, just like the others that were there. This was letting the people know. This was God's way of showing the, the entire nation of Israel, what has been done here is from me. You have to catch this. You have to see that these men are now empowered as leaders along with Moses. Some of the spirit that was on him has been taken and given to these. And so, yes, this is a legitimate thing. I have put my hand on these people to help carry the burden of the nation. And so that's what we have to catch there. And that's, that's you're going to see in some of these other stories how God regarded Moses. There was a, there was a very deep and intimate connection, connection that the two had. So he dealt with that part of what was going on in this rebellion first. And now we get to the part where he's going to deal with the people and their complaint for meat. It says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, 
the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Tabor Hatava, because they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Okay, when the people went out and gathered manna each day, anything that wasn't used in that day became no good. God's provision was fresh and new every single day. He had, he had enough to provide for them every day. So they weren't to, to try and hoard up enough to last, you know, for a few days because I don't know if God's going to have the man out here again tomorrow morning. No, it was every day. And in this case, they looked at all this quail and they realized, or they, they reasoned on their own to themselves that I need to collect as much of this as I absolutely can. And so they became very gluttonous in this moment. There's so much provision here that they just gorged on it. And so while they had it still in their mouths, they started dying. A plague broke out. So their complaint for meat was a, a complaint of, I don't like how you're providing for me. I don't like it, God. Your provision that you've given me just isn't enough. They weren't focused. They weren't maintaining focus and they weren't communing and resting with God. And that's what happens. They start complaining and they rebel. Okay, let's look at the counterpart to that story uh, for the complaint to, uh, to provide meat. Jump over to Numbers 20. We're going to read Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. Numbers 20, starting in verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes, to yield its water. It's important. God instructed Moses to tell the rock to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? 
And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So Moses didn't obey to speak to the rock to bring forth its water. Instead, he struck the rock. And God said, you didn't believe me that I would do what I said I was going to do in the way that I told you to do it. He was still faithful to follow through and, and provide water, right? That would still happen. But it didn't happen the way he intended. So these two stories, they're, they're obviously connected because of their focus on the people's angry demand for food and water. Now, the complaint for meat is answered as God, you know, he, he sent that super abundance of quail uh, to the people that ends up poisoning them. Their demand for water ends up provoking Moses to act in, and speak in a way that dishonors God and, and ultimately disqualifies him from entering the promised land. In, in both these stories, the people long for food and security they once had in Egypt. They had those things in Egypt, but they were also in bondage. They weren't free. They weren't able to be God's family like he intended. Okay, let's move to the next set of stories. Numbers 12. All right, starting in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. The Lord heard what Moses, or excuse me, what Aaron and Miriam were saying about Moses. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were found on the face of the earth. He is the most humble man on earth. And suddenly, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. They got, just got called on the carpet. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. I... I I can't imagine this scene, and I, and I hope you can try to picture it in your head. Like, they hear themselves called to the tent of meeting. God said, come here. Come over here. And when they came, he came down in this pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance. And God said to them, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful 
in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. So what I, I talked about a minute ago. This is how God regards Moses. He regards him so much so that he doesn't just come to him in visions, doesn't just speak to him in dreams, but speaks to him like a best friend. God and Moses, besties, right? So much so that he wonders, why are you two not afraid to say these things against my best friend? God's best friend. The guy who's described as the most humble man on earth. They weren't afraid to speak against him. Goes on and says, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as, as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed? Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazroth and camped in the wilderness of Quran. So when the cloud lifted off the tent, people were supposed to pack up and move and follow the cloud wherever it moved. And when it settled, they would set up camp again. So that's what happened. It says the cloud lifted, but because of the judgment against Miriam in what in the rebellion that, that she had committed, they waited for her. This was a very public thing. This wasn't something that was hidden away. Their rebellion was known to the entire nation. All right, jump over now to Numbers 16. I told you we're going to be all through the book of Numbers today. That's why the, the, the title of Numbers is a little misleading. In the wilderness, much better description. All right, number 16, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up against Moses with a number of the people of Israel. 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. 250 of the leaders who were known by the people of Israel rose up against Moses. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves 
above the assembly of the Lord. If Moses is the most humble man on earth, do you really think he's doing that? you really think he's lording anything over these people? Probably not. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all of his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, if it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together, what is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us up out of, the, out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. So these people are describing Egypt now as a land flowing with milk and honey. The place they came from, they're describing with the place that God has promised them. It is crazy. They, they are describing it that way, and they are, they are saying that you haven't given us our inheritance yet. What did you do? That caused you not to receive your inheritance yet. And what did you do that is keeping you out of this land flowing with milk and honey? And, and Moses says to the Lord, I haven't done any of this. I'm not guilty of what it is that they are accusing me of. And God knows that. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company, before the Lord. You and they and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. You also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So these 250 guys led the entire nation against Moses and Aaron, right in front of the presence of God, right in front of the, the, the place where God dwells. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. God's going to kill everybody, except for Moses and Aaron. He wants them to back up, because he's about to unleash something on them. 
Yeah. And they it says, and they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. So Moses and Aaron don't want the entire nation, even though they're supporting these guys, to be killed because of the few. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and, and Abraham, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tent of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord, which is what he's being accused of. If these men die as all men die, which is old age, right? Or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. So if they grow old and die, that's a sign to the people that, that God did not send Moses. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking, all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they, they and all that belonged to them went down alive in the Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry. For they said, lest the earth swallows us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. So the people, the, the three that organized this, this rebellion up, them and all of their household, all of their belongings swallowed up into the earth. And then the 250 leaders that were with them consumed by fire. But that story goes on to talk about what, there was a lot of talk about the censers, the, the incense that was supposed to be burned on them. Those 250 censers were taken up and Aaron was instructed to do specific things with them, and you can read about that later. We jump down to Numbers 16, starting in verse 41. It says, But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and, and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it 
put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, beside those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. So the congregation, all the nation comes together and says, those men that were killed because of their rebellion, that was your fault, Moses. It's your fault they died. It wasn't judgment from God. It's your fault, Moses. You did that. That's what they're saying. And again, God hears it. and He is not happy with the way they're talking against Moses, the way they are rebelling here. And from the time that God speaks that judgment against them and the time Moses instructs Aaron to go get incense and go make atonement, and he runs, it says he runs to do this, 14,700 people died that quick. Yes, these are specific rebellions against leadership. This is specific rebellions against the people that God had set in place. And in each case, the, this coup is launched from, from the inside. You know, Moses' own siblings betray him, and later Aaron's extended family betrays him. And in both instances, the unique calling of Moses and Aaron, they're reaffirmed in, in very public, in very open, very memorable way. The last rebellion that I want to look at, at the very center of this collection, it's a, it's a two-chapter two chapter story about uh, the people wishing they could reverse the exodus and go back to Egypt. The 12 tribes, they each pick a representative, uh, that under Moses' instruction to spy out the land of Canaan, and 10 of the 12 come back and start a rebellion among the people. They convince the people that there is just certain death that awaits them if they go into the promised land. That's what they say. And they decide to appoint leaders to take them back to Egypt. You can read about in, in Numbers 13, Moses uh, sent them out with specific instructions. And, and we're going to pick up in verse 21 here. Numbers 13, starting in verse 21. So it says, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Labo Hamath. They went up into the Najeb and came to Hebron. Ahaman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Just imagine how massive these grapes must have been. This one single little cluster must have been 
that they had to stick it on a pole and carry it between two people. That's big. Real big. Huge. Massive. Impressive, to say the least, right? This is the land that God has provided for them. This is the provision that, that is coming that awaits them. I wish it was good enough. At the end of 40 days, which is how long they were, they were instructed, uh, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, should have stopped right there, right? It should have stopped right there. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. So they show them the fruit, these, these ten spies, and say, However, the people are big. But Caleb jumps right in and says, hold on, everybody, be quiet, listen. Let's go right now. Let's go up there right now and occupy the land that God has already said is ours. He's audacious. He's bold. That's what he wants to go do. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. How do you know that? What on earth leads these people to believe that what they consider the giants in this land to be so great and so powerful and such a big army that they can't defeat them when they go up against them? Again, I got to point back to the Red Sea. Do you forget this? God, open up the Red Sea. You're able to walk through on dry land. You turn around and you watch the entire army with all of the leadership of Egypt roll in there and get swallowed up, destroyed. Just absolutely annihilated. They're forgetting these things. And they say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants. The land devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. We've talked about this before. They saw themselves as grasshoppers, as small. So that's how everybody else did too. How you see yourself matters to the people around you. 
You've heard Angie talk about this before. You, you have to teach people how to interact with you. And I know I'm not doing this justice, but this is the, the idea that we're talking about here is you know who you are. You are the people of God. You are set apart, right? That's who these people were. That's who the nation of Israel was. They were set apart as God's family. All the other nations are out there, but God says, this is my family. This is my portion right here, the inheritance. He calls Jacob his inheritance. That's where all these people came from. How on earth are you knowing all this, all that you've seen, all that you've experienced, all the provision that has come to you in this time, do you see yourself as small? For us, having Jesus come to the cross and do what he did for us, there is no way we should see ourselves as grasshoppers, as small. You should be seeing yourselves as the giants. Because that's what you are. You have the very Spirit of God living inside of you. So the report that these people brought, it should never, should never even have come up. They should see this and be seeing the next opportunity for God to show off and put the nation of Israel on display for the entire known world at that point to see. Because there is a reputation that they are gaining in the wilderness. And this should have just been another facet of that. And as you move into chapter 14, the people are just weeping to go back to Egypt because they listen to the majority and not to those who are speaking truth, born out of their belief that God would in fact do what he said he would do and give them the land flowing with milk and honey. They chose leaders then to take them back to Egypt. And for that, God wanted to destroy them. But Moses intercedes again, pleading with God not to destroy the people. And we see God's response here in Numbers 14 in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. This rebellion has, has many consequences. And so I, I encourage you to, to read the rest of, of chapter 14. Really the entire book. It's worth your time, uh, your time investing. Every single story, it, it ramps up the intensity and you finish the section of the book feeling really kind of disheartened. And, and you may also, when you read this, because of the, the 
filter that we have to put this through, you may feel a bit superior, thinking, you know, certainly I'd never act like this. I, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't rebel like this. I wouldn't complain or grumble or whine. But the moment you start to, to think that you would never behave like the Israelite in that moment, the stories have, have worked their magic. You didn't realize that in, in Numbers, particularly in, in chapters 11 to 21, they hold up a mirror to, to anyone who's reading this. The wilderness rebellion stories function somewhat like a cartoon character drawing. You've seen those in the street fair where the, the features get exaggerated, right? The artist looks at your face, takes some features, and and makes somewhat of an actual appearance and, and magnifies things all out of proportion, right? That's the point of numbers. It's trying to highlight something about, about our hearts, about our minds, and how fickle and, and short-sighted we as God's people can become. That includes each of, each of us. We forget our priorities of work and our priorities of effort. We forget who the central focus is. Who can honestly say they've never been ridiculously impatient with God's timing? Remember Abraham, he wandered through, through the wilderness on, on the way to the promised land, just looking around. And he had his low moments, but in the end, what was his life characterized by? By faith. By faith in God's promise, despite really difficult circumstances. In contrast, the people of Israel had, had more than just divine promises to rely upon, right? They witnessed the ten plagues, the defeat of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. But these memories, they, they quickly faded in the face of hunger, in the face of thirst, and, and an uncertain future. They didn't know what was going to be happening. They knew what the outcome was supposed to be, but when these 10 spies came in and started giving a bad report, they lost focus. We forget to remember, too. We forget who we really are and who God has been for us. These stories are an honest portrayal of how you and I actually relate to God in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's, it's an unfortunate thing that in the midst of difficulties, we will rebel and try to do things in our own strength, in our own understanding, rather than remembering what God has done for us and relying on him for the provision that he has promised. You know, unbeknownst to Israel, up in the hills, God's turning anger and hostility of, of Israel's enemies into blessing and hope. Even when God disciplines his people in the wilderness, you know, he's at work behind the scenes to accomplish his ultimate purposes and bless and to save. So remember, the entire story isn't about how awesome the Israelites are, right? Not what it's about. It's about the about the real strange and wonderful way God is going to accomplish his 
covenant promise to Abraham and to restore divine blessing to all the nations. Because all the nations are eventually going to be brought back into God's family. Whether Israel believes in God's promises or not, he's going to fulfill his word. I mean, we had a declaration last year in 2022. The very first declaration we had last year was declaring scripture over us that nothing that God speaks is going to come back void. His promises will be fulfilled. You have a mission from God. If you're unsure uh, what that is, just ask. He'll show it to you. Then just believe it and, and take action. Step out in faith. Focus on the priorities that keep you from grumbling. Be reliant on God for everything in your life. Remember, live out the faith that you claim. In your reliance, be marked by, by communing and resting with God and by the victories that he gives you. Most importantly, just remember the central focus of the camp, which is God. Don't allow rebellion to be your story. What are your priorities of work and effort in your current mission? And what is your central focus? Those are the two questions that I want you to remember this week. Get into these stories. Don't let the, the, the title of the book deter you from getting in and reading it. Yes, there are a couple of sentences that are in there, uh, especially at the beginning. There's one of them that, that is, is tough material to read through because it gets kind of boring. We'll just call it what it is. Uh, but these stories are in there, and there are some great things. And, and if you really want to uh, start seeing some wild stuff, keep, keep going. Read about the talking donkey. So what are your priorities of work and effort in your current mission? What is your central focus? Because I know that that you you need to wiggle a little bit. Wow! Can we just can we just give God a hand? That was amazing. I don't know about you, but when Vince teaches, I always feel like I'm in this great hall of education. It's just how I feel. And I, I actually feel like we need to kind of rearrange the room to, <laughs> to what? Yeah, I, I feel like we should rearrange too, because in, in years past and even in Jesus's day, the, the teacher didn't stand. The teacher sat and everybody else stood. So we may try that. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so fun. I love that. Um, but I do. I feel like we need to to kind of rearrange to complement what's taking place in here. And I just like I had this whole vision going on of like visuals and like how many of you wanted to see what the camp was set up like in the middle of that? Like I I know you did because <laughs> Serenity is hungry when we're in the middle of studying the Word of God. I I, I pulled a picture actually. I was like I need to remind myself what this looks like because it's so. It's just so fascinating, and there was super intention behind everything that God did, and and not only that, but there's order 
there was order in the camp. And I am like, just, just thrilled with the idea because the, the, the Levitical tribe, the Levites, they got to be in the center of it all where the tabernacle was because they are the only tribe that answered the call to being the priesthood. It was for everyone. It was for everyone. Everyone was invited, but only the Levites responded to the call. So guess where they were in proximity to the presence of God? In the center. Our call are also. We are kings and priests. We are kings and priests. It is our call. And I just want to highlight a few things that Vince said. One, the manna. Does everybody understand the manna? The people would wake up, step foot outside their tents in their cute little lying tribes, and the ground was covered in what was called manna. I want to remind you, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus said, pray like this. He's like, don't get all fancy and weird. Don't get weird about it. Don't get a megaphone. Don't stand on a corner. Just pray like this. Our Father, who's in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What's he talking about? The manna. The reason why the manna should have been enough for the people is because it was Christ provided for them daily. Every single day, it was like Groundhog Day, they'd step outside their tent and there was the manna. Fascinating. This is fascinating. But they grumbled and they complained. Then God gave them meat. Then they grumbled and they complained. They wanted water. What does the water symbolize? There's a reason why God told Moses to speak to the rock and not to hit it. There's a time to hit things. And then there's a time to speak to things. The water represents the spirit life. Say the water represents the spirit life. The spirit life requires what? Anyone? 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 We talked about it last week a little bit. What is Abraham known for? Faith. You were listening. Thank you. The spirit life requires faith. So to hit the rock, there was an absence of faith. But if he spoke to the rock, it means he had to reach into the unseen and trust God and pull it out. So their, their desire for water wasn't necessarily wrong. They knew there was more. Are we desiring the spirit life? And then the last thing I want to highlight is Caleb. They come back and they're grumbling. They're, they're whining about all the things that were just wrong about this place. Caleb interrupts them. Hold on. It's not what I saw. Caleb means wholehearted or brave. What report are you responding to? Are you responding wholeheartedly and with bravery? Or are you siding with the habitual grumbling? Are you being spirit-led? Are you craving the water? 
Are you satisfied with your daily bread? Or do you want to go back to Egypt? Do you prefer bondage? The other day, God says, I want you to start having a call to salvation as often as you meet together. And I was like, Lord, everybody in the room is saved. <laughs> Shall we get resaved all over again? He's like, it's not about the room. It's about the land. It's about those who are coming. And I want us to position ourselves in a way where we have that faith life active in us, where we're desiring the ways of the spirit and we're reaching in and saying, there are more people. There are more people that need to hear about Jesus being the daily bread. Look at what I love that Vince kept highlighting. Like, they forgot. He already split the sea. They walked through on dry ground. They watched the entire army of their enemy be swallowed up. And yet they desired to go back underneath a defeated enemy. Ouch! And that's what we're doing when we're turning our back on the faith life, on the spirit life. So we're going to continue to reach in, pull the people into our line of sight, spiritually speaking. Can you see them? Can you see all the people that are desiring, hungering? thirsting for righteousness, to know who they are. You know who you are because you've been spoiled. You know who you are because you sit under great teaching week after week after week after week, and we tell you who you are. There are people that don't know. And it's our job to tell the land. I love it. Megan came in. Actually, she texted me on the way home Wednesday night. She's like, there's a massive white tent up on Jay Hill, and they're doing this revival thing. She, she like, investigated. <laughs> Every night at 7.30? Every night at 7.30, there's some revival going on. I don't know anything about it. Listen, I don't know what's going on up there. <laughs> but every night at 7.30, they're having a tent revival. And I just loved the hunger. She's like, what do you think this is? So she comes in today, and she's like, she's got pictures She's got evidence of the revival that's going on. Now, I have no idea what's going on out there. We have plans. We're going to go crash their party. <laughs> We're going to have a field trip. It's going to be fun. I have no idea what's going on there. They could be sacrificing chickens for all I know. <laughs> but I love the hunger. Don't you love the hunger? I love the hunger to be like, I want in. What's God doing? And I'm not trying to be like the other eight where I'm coming back with a bad report. I'm just like, we just need to be wise. Because <laughs> I don't want to be a part of sacrificing chickens. Um, so anyway, every time we get together, we're going to, we're going to talk about salvation and what that means. And I, I taught on this a few weeks ago. And it's not, it's not rescue it's not escape from hell. It's laying your life down for another. It's saying, I want it all. I want the spirit life. Choose me, pick me. I want the narrow road. And maybe it's presumptuous for me to think that everybody in the room has already done this. You've already decided that that's the life you want. 
If that's you, if you are someone in the room, or if you're just someone out there that we're talking to, choosing Jesus means giving up your life as you know it. We're not, we're not going to sugarcoat it. It means I no longer live. Christ is living in me. I have become fully possessed by him to accomplish his kingdom desires on the earth. Yes? Anybody? 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 Anybody want that life? Like, why are we not excited? Seriously, I want us to be excited about this. You should be a walking billboard for the kingdom of God. Not in a weird way. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. Don't be weird. But it should be. It should be. You should be drawing curiosity out of people. What do they have that I don't have? I want it. I want it. Yeah. So just let's, let's close our eyes. Jesus, we just thank you for the invitation to lay our lives down on your altar, to be consumed rightly by your flames, to give up our lives to live as you on the earth, following the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we say yes to you. We say yes to you. Come lay hold of us. Come possess us. And put your kingdom on display through us. We're saying yes to a life fully devoted to you, King Jesus. And we are saying yes to a life of invitation going deeper and deeper and deeper into you just to behold your glory. Repeat after me. Say, put yourself. No, with enthusiasm. Put yourself on display in me. Amen. Just a quick reminder. Baby shower up too. <laughs>